I'll, I won't We're cross now. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to another episode of Beyond the Cover. We want to welcome you back. I am one of your hosts, John Robb, and of course we are here with our other fabulous host, Jeff Ayers. Jeff, how you doing, man? Been doing well. I missed everybody. Hope everybody's doing well. Well, that's because you were cooking, and I don't mean that that's right. Like, I didn't mean, and I mean that in the literal sense. You were cooking, and so that's great. Yep. Yeah, I, uh, I know how yeah, to make some pretty good dishes now. Exactly, and we're glad to be back. We're glad to be on with you guys. We want to let you know, of course, that all the shows are brought to you by Kensington Books. Make sure you visit kensingtonbooks.com for more information on their authors and their new releases. Tonight's guest live, we are going to have author John McGoran on. He's going to be talking about several things, including the latest book that he just put out. It's called The Dead Ring. It's a blacklist novel, which is based on the TV show, of course, Blacklist. And then we also have another interview from Alec Berenson, which I taped, and we will be playing that uh, on the second half of the show. So big things we got going on. So you ready, Jeff? Let's go for it. And every time I do hear that song, now that Brad Parks was on and we hear our cover song, now I just want to say, let's go to Diagon Alley, him and his freaking Harry Potter thing. So, um, <laughs> But John is not in Diagon Alley, but John is now on the show. So, John, thanks so much for coming on. How you doing? I'm doing great, guys. I'm um, very happy to be here. Looking forward to, to having a talk. Glad you could join us. So, like I said at the beginning, I mean, with you, you, have, you have several, you know, uh, books that you have written. Of course, you have your own storylines. You have your own books that you've done. But you kind of stepped out of here, and you've done this book called The Dead Ring, which is a Blacklist novel, which is based on the TV show Blacklist. So it's got all the characters that people are familiar with, so tell us a little bit about um, maybe the conception of the book and, you know, kind of how you decided, how you got involved in writing this and what you got going on for us. Yeah, well, I, I, uh, I got involved, um, you know, basically uh, through a call from my agent, uh, Stacia Decker at uh, Dunnell Carson Lerner. She's uh, um, a, a, a great, she's great. I, I love her. She's a good friend and a, and a great partner and, uh, and she's awesome. And, uh, you know, she called and said, Hey, do you, you know, do you watch the, the, uh, the blacklist? And I was like, yeah, I love that show. So, uh, so that's, that's where it, uh, it started from. Um, they, uh, they were, were doing a series. There was a, a guy, a very nice guy named Steven Tizics did the first book and, uh, I did the second. I think they've got a third one lined up now. Um, but, uh, I don't know the details of that. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a real fun show. It's, you know, the, the main character, uh, the James Spader plays Red Reddington and he's just this like outrageous character. Who's just so much fun to watch and so much fun to write, uh, that, uh, that it was really, uh, it was, uh, I was very excited to be able to, uh, to be able to hop on board, um, and, uh, and play in that sandbox, you know? Well, I, I'm a big fan of the show myself, and I'm wondering, what restrictions did you have while you were writing it? Well, you know, it was weird. One of the challenges um, 
you know, the show is, is, is pretty, uh, it's pretty out there in, you know, the way that they kind of zig and zag with the characters. I mean, they really kind of take some, uh, take some unexpected twists and turns. So, you know, the, um, it wasn't kind of part of the, the show's timeline. So one of the real challenges was kind of choosing a configuration of, um, you know, choosing kind of like a moment of, of how the characters interrelated uh, and saying, okay, this is, this is how, you know, this is how they feel about each other. This is what they know about each other. This is what they suspect about each other right about now. And I'm going to, you know, write the story outside of that timeline, but during that time. Um, so, you know, there's all with, uh, you know, Keen, the, 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 the other main character, uh, she and her husband, you know, they go through a lot of, a lot of pretty crazy and, uh, and extreme relationship evolutions, uh, over the course of a couple of seasons. Uh, and, uh, so one of the things that I, I just kind of had to do uh, to, to feel comfortable about how the book fit in with the, uh, with the series was, was kind of have it take place during one of the times where he's not really in it, uh, you know, just for, for my own sanity, apart from anything else. Um, but, uh, but, you know, once I kind of did that, I, I kind of said, okay, this is kind of, you know, roughly end of first season, roughly beginning of second season, right around there, um, you know, kind of came up with a, a framing that the, the showrunner and the publisher were, uh, were, were comfortable with. And, uh, and then, then we went ahead. Cool. So, when you talk fans of the show, fans of the show are going to pick up this book, and this is more, um, you want to say, a companion. It, like you said, it doesn't follow any storylines. It's not going to fill in any holes or anything. It's like its own separate kind of episode, right, that's kind of outside of the main storyline? Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And so with the Blacklist, there's this kind of interesting thing, you know, that, uh, you know, part of the premise, or, you know, I guess the main premise is that, uh, you know, James Spader, the James Spader character, Reddington, he uh, is like on the FBI's most wanted list and he shows up and he says, you know, I will I will work with you. Um, I will give up all these bad guys. Uh, you know, the one condition is that he has to be able to work with with uh, Agent Keene. And, and a lot of what the show is about is trying to figure out what that's all about. Um, but the, the, these, you know, big bad guys on the uh, on the blacklist, they they're numbered. So it's kind of like when they give your bad guy a number, I think you're kind of officially part of the canon, you know, which is, which Mm -hmm. is, is kind of, uh, kind of an interesting, uh, it it was interesting to me. I hadn't, I hadn't kind of like been exposed to that, that structure before. So it was, uh, it was a hoot to get my blacklist number, you know, that the, uh, the bad guy gets number 166, I believe. And, uh, and, uh, you know, that's kind kind of what I do. I really belonged, you know? Now, now, when you write a book like this too, and of course you have a you, you have a massive, massive, you know, following of this show, and you of course you have the studio and NBC and everybody behind this thing. How many hands does it have to go through to make sure that they're like, okay, you you know you you have to be the dialogue has to be correct for all these characters, and these things won't happen, or these things would happen, and and things of those nature do. Uh, do you have to go through and how frustrating is it when they're like, no, you kind of take this out because you know what I mean? 
or you have to take this yeah, out, this yeah. work, or this and that. A lot of rewrites, I would think. Well, you know, here's the thing. Uh, there actually weren't that much. There was a lot of back and forth in the beginning, you know. So one of the things that we did, which kind of played to my strength, I'm a, I'm a really big outliner, uh, you know, no matter what I'm writing. And it, it's kind of like, I, I mean, I think sometimes I need to just, you know, uh, break away from it sometimes because I'll, like, sit down to write a flash fiction piece and it's like, well, let me work on my outline first. Um, and uh, But it works for me. That's part of my process. Um, with with media tie-in stuff, you know, you do these really, really elaborate outlines so that the publisher and the licensor, uh, they know like, with a great degree of specificity what's going to go on in the book. Um, so uh, in this case, I was dealing directly with the showrunner, which was, which was you know, pretty cool. You know, I, I interacted with John Bogenkamp, um, and, um, and, and, that, was, and that, was, uh, that was really interesting. Um, so we had so much kind of back and forth ahead of time, um, that, uh, that, you know, we didn't really need that much in the way of rewrites, which was great, you know, and, um, um, and I think also, you know, you know, since I was a fan of the show or am a fan of the show and I had, had seen a lot of it, um, I, I felt like I really kind of captured, you know, the voices pretty well. Uh, I thought, I, you know, I think I kind of had the characters down. Um, you know, there were a few things they're like, yeah, no, don't do that. And, and, you know, one of the things that's, that's really interesting when you're, um, you know, when you're doing something like this and I've, you know, this is my first media tie in novel, but I, I have done short stories in other, you know, uh, canons. I did an X-Files story and zombies versus robots. And I've got something coming out in the, in the fall, which I, I'll, I'll mention later, which is a lot of fun. Um, but, um, but, you know, a lot of things that, the showrunner or whoever it is that you're dealing with might be concerned about, you know, isn't necessarily so much conflicting with, with things that have already come out, but, you know, they want to make sure that you're not closing off avenues that they might want to explore, you know, uh, that, that you're not kind of doing something that would make something that they might want to do later not work from a character standpoint or, or any other standpoint. Um, so, you know, it can be frustrating, but, you know, part of working in this world is that you're, you know, you are, you're playing in somebody else's sandbox. You're, you're exploring, you know, somebody else's universe and somebody else's characters. And, you know, that's part of the challenge. That's part of the fun. Uh, and, and those kinds of limitations uh, or, uh, or pushback, that's, that's part of it. And, you know, it's fine. Um, just curiosity's sake. Um, did you get a hint of what's coming for the rest of the season and, or, uh, maybe who the number one villain is, because you said they count each one. Each one gets a number. Yeah, yeah, I know all of that stuff. No, no, really, I don't. Uh, they, uh... <laughs> yeah, they do not. I have a theory of the number one. Right. You put put that shit out there, and they're going to change your number to uh, bad guy number one, and that's it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I have number a theory who number one is, but uh, I'd be number one with a bullet, so to speak. Uh, I think number but, one uh, is Reddington. I, that's I, my I, guess I, too. I, yeah, I think it's Reddington. I say nothing. I say nothing. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, all right. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm. I want to ask you about uh, the series that you've been doing, uh, featuring the detective and the science background as well. Could you talk a bit about those three books? Yeah, sure, sure. Happy to. Um, so there's um, so there's three books: uh, Drift, Dead Out, and uh, Dust Up, which came out uh, last year. 
uh, in the spring. Um, and uh, the, the, the main character is Doyle Carrick, a uh, kind of somewhat snarky uh, Philadelphia narcotic detective. Um, I, I love science thrillers. You know, that's uh, – I love kind of um, – yeah, science thrillers. I, I, you know, I love the kind of uh, the crime and mystery genre. I love, uh, you know, detective novels, but I also love books that have a little bit of science in them. So, you know, when I can combine them, that's that's when I'm in my happy place. You know, um, so uh, so, you know, the series kind of is about you know biotech and crazy stuff that's going on, and you know, food and pharmaceuticals and. Uh, you know, corporate agriculture. Um, and I kind of, I structured it with this character who really doesn't give a rat's ass about any of that stuff. Uh, he kind of gets pulled into this world uh, and he gets pulled in deeper and deeper. Um, and um, it, it's, you know, part of the fun for me is, is kind of uh, seeing him kind of go on this, on this kind of journey and, and uh, go from a, a, a very narrow um like narrow perspective to a broader, more global perspective. Uh, so the uh, the first book, Drift, takes place in the con- Pennsylvania countryside and Philadelphia. For some reason, I, I keep plotting these books, and they end up uh, taking Doyle uh, away from Philadelphia. Um, I did write it. There's a novella that's available as an ebook called Down to Zero, which takes place between the second and third book. Um, and that takes place entirely within the city of Philadelphia, almost entirely within the city of Philadelphia. Not to think of it, not entirely. Um, but uh, but I really like writing in you know actual you know locations, real geographic places. I like I love writing in Philadelphia. That's where I'm from, and I think it's a great uh, a great setting for for a bunch of different reasons. Um, uh, actually, I wrote a forensic series for Penguin before the uh, under a pen name D.H. Dublin before the uh, before the Dual Carrick series, and that was. You know, oh, see, I was going to ask you about that. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, we, we can get to that. Um, but uh, yeah. so yeah, with the, uh, the 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 one of the the tie-in product uh, projects that that uh, I kind of mentioned earlier, I've got this uh, a short story coming out in this really cool anthology. Uh, I think it's coming out this fall. Um, my very good friend John uh, Jonathan Mayberry uh, has this great series, oh, yeah. the Joe Ledger series. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's awesome. He's a he's a really good pal. He's one of my favorite writers, um, and uh, and I really dig the Joe Ledger series. It's yeah, I really really enjoy that a lot. So he has this anthology coming out called Joe Ledger Unstoppable, um, and it's all these amazing thriller writers uh, who are not him uh, writing Joe Ledger stories. Um, and, uh, and he asked me and a couple of others, uh, to, to write stories that involve our protagonists working with Joe Ledger. So, uh, so there's like a, 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 a Doyle Carrick, Joe Ledger team up story in, uh, in this anthology coming out in the fall. So that, that's really exciting. That's, that's going to be a lot of fun. Um, but, uh, yeah, so that's, that's kind of the series, the, the most recent, uh, you know, the third book in the series uh, Dust Up um, takes place in Haiti primarily, and you know it does. It kind of the the books themselves tend to kind of start small and kind of uh, you know unspool and expand into these uh, kind of big combustible thrillers, uh, and uh, and the series is kind of expanded too. So 
I'm working on a couple of other things right now. I'm, I'm hoping to get back to it at some point. Um, but, uh, but it's been a lot of fun. It's been a lot of fun to write. So for, so for fans just finding out or, you know, fans that are kind of looking uh, for, for science, kind of something new, and they run into Doyle Carrick, who is he? Uh, who, who is Doyle? Yeah, Doyle is, um, I mean, he's a lot like me in ways, which, you know, as I, as I uh, you know, people say, are you Doyle Carrick? And I, I, I like to say all of the smart ass and none They're of the like, bad No, ass. I'm John McGoran. Uh, <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but it is. It's like I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm very comfortable writing uh, his, um, his voice. You know, the, the protagonist for the, uh, the forensic books was Madison Cross, a uh, young beautiful woman. So that's much less me. Much, much, much less me. <laughs> uh, and Doyle Carrick is a little more so. Um, the thing, I, you know, he, he's not. You know, he's not. Uh, it's not like he's got this like really. You know, what he would consider a really strong moral code or ethical, you know, uh, I mean, he is, but that's in his mind. It's just like, he, he hates, he hates to see, um, unfairness, which I think is like a really kind of essential, uh, essential quality to a righteous kind of crime fighting dude. Um, or, or, you know, uh, any crime, crime fighting character, you know, is like seeing these things happening and and not wanting to see innocent people gotten over on and you know bad people getting away with it um so you know he starts out he's 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 a cop you know so he he deals with um very local small immediate human scaled uh crimes but as as the the you know as drift begins as drift begins i mean this will kind of give you a sense of him he uh he finds out that his mother, uh, who's been ill, who you know moved out into the into the countryside with her, uh, with his stepfather, um, he finds out that she is uh, taking a turn for the worse. You know, she's been battling cancer, and like the first scene is he's he's in a surveillance van, and his uh, his partner is out there making a drug buy and trying to get some information from a drug dealer, um, and he gets a call uh, from his stepfather saying, you know, this is it. Uh, the uh, you know it looks like your mom's about to die. You need to get out here. Um, and basically, this drug deal is taking forever, and this guy won't spill the beans. He won't give up the information. So he basically gets out of the van and he goes over. And before he before he threatens the drug dealer, he decks his partner. So he, you know to make it look real. So, you know, so he like his best friend. He kind of goes up and he cold cocks him. And then he puts a gun to the head of this drug dealer and says, okay, when's, you know, when's the next re-up? So he gets suspended um, at just as his, uh, his, his mother and then very almost immediately after uh, his stepfather die. Um, and he inherits their house. He goes out in the countryside. And, uh, and he starts to notice a couple of things. One is that there's some weird stuff growing out there. Um, and one is that there are some bad people, people that he recognizes from Philadelphia, you know, driving around. And, and he, you know, he starts to pursue both of those things while at the same time, be, you know, falling in love with the organic farmer next door who's, uh, whose crops are starting to kind of grow in very, very strange, bizarre ways. Um, so it kind of, you know, kind of created this, this, uh, this structure that lets me, you know, write this kind of snarky, kind of noirish uh, crime stuff. But that also lets me do the the crazy, you know, science thriller, Michael Crichton, you know, 
kind of uh, explore that kind of territory as well, which is, you know, for me, that's like a really fun place to, to be. That's like what I like to uh, read most of all and what I like to write as well. Well, you, you mentioned uh, the D.H. Dublin. i got to ask, because that's actually how I discovered you. Those are the first books I read of yours, and I love them, and I wish you'd write some more in that series. Why the pseudonym? Well, it was uh, it was a couple of things. So that was kind of a weird deal. Um, it was, you know, so my agent was shopping around uh, a manuscript, and uh, she brought it to Penguin, and they said, well, we really like this, but this is not what we're looking for right now. We don't really have a slot for this. Can you write a forensic series? So I was like, yes. <laughs> Why? Funny that you should ask, because yes, I can. Um, and, and I'll be honest, you know, I'm, I've kind of, I've been fa- fascinated by forensics. Um, I was a little uh, almost reluctant to write it because I knew the amount of research that was going to be necessary. Um, but, you know, as I said, it's like, it kind of, it scratched that crime meet science itch a bit, you know, uh, and it let me go into some really, you know, some really cool areas, I thought. Um, so, but the, uh, the, the pen name was because uh, since Penguin proposed the series to me, they retained certain rights. Um, and, you know, my agent didn't want my, didn't want my name um, being tied up with, with those obligations uh, and also, uh, I, you know, she had a, you know, this other book that, that she was sure was going to get published uh, right about at the same time. So we wanted to keep the brand, the brand separate. She was wrong about that. It, that book never did get published. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm yeah, sorry. I know. I'm, I'm sorry, too. I'm <laughs> sorry, too. This is a previous agent. This was not Stacia. Um, oh, but, okay. uh, but she did. But, but you know, uh, we did get the, uh, the D.H. Dublin deal. And, uh and that was, uh, yeah, that was a lot of fun. I mean, it was real challenging because since, you know, the way it usually works is, you, you know, you kind of kill yourself writing a book and then you hopefully sell it and then you kind of get to breathe, not easily, but you get to concentrate on editing the book and getting the book ready for publication and sending it out. And with this, it was like, oh, great, I've got a book deal and now I've got, I've got to write three 85,000 word manuscripts in 18 months. Uh, so you know, I didn't get to breathe easily at all. You know, it was like, like, Oh my God, take a deep breath. Here we go. Um, and you know, that wouldn't be as much of a challenge now, you know, but it's still, that's a pretty aggressive schedule. Well, one of the things I like about your work is you take some really complex science stuff that I'm completely baffled about and you make it understandable. So I'm wondering, how do you, how do you do that? You know, I think, I mean, I, I thank you because I, I take that as a as a as a great compliment. That's it's really important to me. Um, you know, it's important to me because it, like if I couldn't do that, then I wouldn't be able to write about the stuff. And I find this stuff fascinating. Um, so uh, so I'm glad that you think that I that I'm I'm able to do it. Um, you know, for me, I think one of one of my strengths as a writer is kind of being able to like recognize narrative wherever it is. Uh, and I think that, you know, and I think that's a big part of it is looking at this, uh, at this scientific idea and saying, Oh, you know, you know, it'd be a cool story is that, you know, and once you kind of have figured out how to integrate, 
like how to really integrate the idea into the story, you're kind of halfway there. You know, now you've got story and, you know, people will go, as long as you keep the story interesting, people will go along with you. Um, you know, I guess there is more of a challenge, you know, or an additional challenge or another part of the challenge of, of making it really, really accessible. Um, but, you know, one of the things that's, um, you know, that's one of the, that's one of the benefits of writing a 400 page novel, you know, it's like, you can kind of, you know, tease out the, these complex ideas in little tiny little, little spoonfuls, you know, and different characters can have different viewpoints on it. And some can be pro and some can be con and some can be experts and some can be novices. And some people can say, well, what do you mean by that? That's ridiculous. Or, you know, I mean, there's all sorts of ways that you can uh, use characters over the course of 400 pages to, to really kind of, break down complex ideas that, you know, if you were just trying to explain the idea, it would, it, you know, people's eyes might glaze. Um, but if you can integrate it into a story over the course of, of, of you know, whatever, 90,000 words, 80,000 words, then, you know, a lot of times people, people will get to the end of the story and realize they understand this thing that they didn't understand before uh, and they don't really know exactly when it was they started understanding it, you know? So I got a question that's good. for you. So what is Spliced? So Spliced, I'm very excited about Spliced. Uh, Spliced is, um, it's my first young adult. It's a kind of near future science fiction thriller. Um, and it, and it kind of jumps, straight from research that I did while I was writing Drift and Dead Out and Dust Up. Uh, and so one of the things that I read about while I was, while I was researching those books was that there is this kind of uh, this subculture out there of biohackers. Uh, and just in the way, the same way that, uh, that in the seventies and eighties, you know, Stephen, Stephen Jobs and Bill Gates were, you know, building computers in their garages people are doing that with genetic engineering right now. Uh, they're just, they've got beakers of this and that, and they're throwing stuff together and seeing what, you know, pops up. And it's, it's, it's kind of endearing, but it's definitely terrifying in a way. Uh, and I knew I wanted to write about that. I thought that's just like so many different story possibilities there. Um, being a thriller writer, of course, obviously the first thing I thought of was that there'd be some sort of uh, plague that comes from it. And I might still write that at some point. Uh, but I knew I wanted to write young adult and I, I was thinking about it. And I, I also, I kind of wanted to write like the less obvious uh, story that, that comes from that premise. And I thought, wow, what if in the near future, uh, the biohacking subculture has merged with the body modification subculture. Uh, and you've got this, this kind of subculture of disaffected young people who are splicing animal genes into their own. Um, and, you know, there's the rich kids who go to a, a spa out of the country and have a trained medical professional give them a tasteful leopard spot on the back of their neck. Uh, and then you've got these kind of punks in the city who go to a garage somewhere um, and a guy called, called a, a, a genie, <laughs> Uh, you know, kind of gives them uh, this kind of viral splice and you kind of hope for the best and sometimes it goes wrong. So, so I was like really psyched about that. And then I realized that, that if that was to happen, there would definitely be a backlash. So this kind of adventure in this, uh, in this, you know, world 
is set against this uh, political backlash or religious, political religious backlash against the kids who are getting spliced. Uh, and a law is passed that anyone whose DNA is not 100% human is no longer legally a person, um, which, uh, which opens the door for a lot of, uh, a lot of really what I think, you know, cool things to explore from a social as well as scientific and, you know, as a political uh, perspective. So it's, it's, uh, it's pretty cool, and I'm really excited about it. It's coming out in November from Holiday House. Oh, nice. Cool. Look forward to that. Congratulations. Well, yeah, I'll tell thanks. you what, John. Um, real quick here before we wrap this up, I'll give you like the last couple 30 seconds or whatever to kind of let everybody know where the best way they is to find you, your website, Twitter, Facebook, all that mass destruction social media stuff you got going on. Yeah, yeah. JohnMcGoran.com is the website. Uh, Facebook, John McGoran, you know, no H, J-O-N-M-C-G-O-R-A-N. Uh, and, and that's I my stole Twitter the handle H. as well. That's why. Yeah. yeah, I stole your age. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, and then we also, uh, uh, I'm in a group called the Liars Club that uh, that uh, science fiction writer Greg Frost and, and Jonathan Mayberry started. Uh, I was like one of the founding members along with them. Um, and uh, we do, you know, the writer co- writer's coffee houses. Uh, we kind of sponsor them around the country. And we do a bunch of different things. We had a, a, an anthology a couple of years called Liar Liar. Um, but we now, uh, just the beginning of the year, we started a uh, the Liars Club Oddcast on Project Entertainment Network. Uh, so uh, we've had some great people already. You know, we had uh, uh, Mayberry was our first guest, and we had Hank Philippi Ryan and Mary Jones and Owen Laukinen. And, and, uh, and actually, we kind of uh, turned the tables on me, and uh, the, the gang did an interview with me uh, that, that, you know, this week. But, uh, but that's been a lot of fun, too, doing the podcast. I, I didn't realize you guys were having as much fun as I now know you are. Hell, yeah. <laughs> it didn't be much more fun if I was stoned, which I'm not, just to let you know. But it is legal in California. Yeah, you got five minutes, then then go to it, man. That's all right. You know, we still got medical marijuana. They're not taking that away from us. That's right. It makes you an art right. expert, right? That's true. I, I'll do it. I'll do a whole show on that. You know, me and Snoop, me 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 and Snoop Dogg, we do it. Yeah, we're we're buddies. I love it. Awesome. Well, John, I tell you, man, it's been a pleasure talking with you. I want to thank you so much for coming on and spending this half hour with us to discuss. You know, not only the latest book, Dead Ring, but, of course, your other series, um, you know, Dust Up, Drift, you know, Dead Out, Down to Zero, all your other books with with Doyle, um, Carrick. So, again, thank you so much for coming on. It was an absolute joy. Uh, It was was a lot of fun for me. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, John and Jeff. Uh, I really appreciate you having me on. Thanks for doing that. Good luck with the Blacklist novel. All right. Thanks, man. Bye-bye. All right, take care. So, again, everybody, that is John McGoran. Please make sure you visit johnmcgoran.com, M-C-G-O-R-A-N.com, for more information on the latest book, The Dead Ring, which is based on The Blacklist. The book comes out on – the book's out today. Today. March 28th. Damn, I came. I lost yep. my time. book's out today. So good. You don't have to wait for it. Go buy the damn thing because you're at your computer or you're listening on your phone, and you know you can buy a book, so go get it. Um, and check out John's other stuff. So, Jeff – you ready? You want to hit Alex? Uh, yeah, let's go for it. Here we go. This, everybody, the exclusive Alex Berenson interview I did with him. Have fun and listen. Okay, here we go. So, hello, everybody. I am here with author 
Alex Berenson. And Alex, it's so good to be able to finally talk to you as we've, like we talked talked about before, we've emailed so many times, but this is the first time we've actually been able to speak uh, on the phone to, to interview. So how are you doing? Uh, I'm great, John. I, uh, it is a pleasure. Well, thank you. I mean, it's great because I think that we first talked to you back when um, you had The Midnight House out, which is one of your books in your John Wells series, and now you're uh, book 11, this is book 11, I believe, of The Prisoner. It, it uh, is the, or, it's hard for me to believe that, but it is true. I know, looking back and, and just seeing how you started out in 2006 with The Faithful Spy, and now you've come up to The Prisoner. So, I mean, John Wells is now a very integral part in you know the genre of military spy political thrillers. I mean, that's just one of the books that, you know, one of the 20 authors or 15 authors that are in this uh, genre so solidified that now, you know, you're one of those guys, and John Wells is like the Mitch Rapp and uh, other, you know, great, you know, characters that are in, in this genre. So when you, when you thought about, you know, creating a John Wells character back then because you had so much experience, you know, writing and corresponding, and, and you did so many different things, how did John Wells kind of come about? How, how did how you kind of make him live? So I was a reporter in uh, Iraq for the New York Times uh, in parts of 2003 and 2004. And uh, even actually before I went back in 2004, 2003, when I got back, I thought, you know, I should try to write something that's a little bit based on the stuff that I saw over there. Uh, you know, because as a, as a reporter, you're limited by the facts and you can't write from inside people's heads. Uh, you know, sometimes people try that in nonfiction, but, uh, but I think it's, it's dangerous to do. And certainly as a, you know, as a reporter for a newspaper, uh, you, you really can't take those kinds of liberties. And so I thought to myself, I, you know, I'd like to go past uh, the bounds of nonfiction and uh, draw on some of what I saw. And wouldn't it be interesting if there were an American who had gone to Afghanistan before September 11 uh, and f- for the CIA and failed to stop those attacks and decided that he was not really going to come home, not going to come home until he uh, had information that would enable him to stop a terrorist attack on American soil? And what if along the way he converted to Islam? And what kind of tension would that cause within the CIA? What kind of tension would that cause for him? Would anyone on either side really trust him? And that was the genesis of the John Wells character. Now, people do often ask on anyone specific, and the truth is that he's not, not really, although portions of his personality, some of his traits are based on some of the soldiers that I uh, met in Iraq. I mean, he he is a soldier as much as a spy. He's not, you know, he's, uh, although he's more thoughtful, I'd like to think, than, you know, than some of these characters, he's not smiley. He's not a guy who spends his time at the office looking through paperwork. He is in the field. Yeah, I mean, let's face it, I mean, every character is kind of created out of somebody that people have seen or run in contact with or something. Um, but the aspect of, you know, John Wells, like you said, converting himself into Islam, of course, and it's such a highly now, set, you're talking in the last 15, 16 years, such a highly controversial subject um, the religion has become. Is it, is it difficult to, with those challenges, when, when you're writing a book, and, and we're going to get into The Prisoner in a second, so when you're writing a book like The Prisoner and you're, and you're having to overcome those, those kind of boundaries and those kinds of things where it is controversial to a way, especially to maybe a reader, how do you kind of handle that as an author? 
Well, I do think that there are some readers out there who don't like the fact that Wells is Muslim. I know that that's true because sometimes they email me. And they, they, say, they let you know with the email. They won't. <laughs> they do. And, you know, and honestly, I think that that's one reason. You know, the books, the books do fine. They're on the bestseller list every year. Yep. The, you know, the, uh, the, the Prisoner was number eight on the Times hardcover bestseller list. But I don't think they sell. One reason I don't think they sell as well as, you know, let's say, uh, you know, Brad Thor is that, is that the the fact that Wells is Muslim does stick in the you know in the craw of, of some readers yeah. who who don't really who think understand you know, with these guys for a long time and I don't really want to read about a guy praying to Mecca even if even if ultimately he's an American patriot and even if he winds up frankly killing a lot of Muslims in a lot of the books um, you know it, it's definitely a problem for some readers but I you know I I can't. Wells's Muslim identity is a crucial part of his of his life, and it's yeah. not going to change. I can't change it. I wouldn't change it. Um, in, in some ways, it's an interesting choice in that Wells is not that religious. Wells, you know, he's 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 certainly. I mean, he's not an atheist. He he he's somewhere between agnostic and a believer. He, I, I would say, he very much wants to believe in God, but then given everything that he's seen, it's hard for him to believe. Um, sure. And that would be true if he were Christian. It would be true if he were Jewish, and it's true of him as a Muslim. And you know, at times he is asked, you know, he's asked, "Why did you convert?" And he, I think his answer sometimes doesn't satisfy people. But it's the the best answer that he has really is that he lived with these, you know, with with um, you know very fervent Muslims for a long time by himself in you know in Afghanistan in Pakistan. And he was cut off from the United States, and he grew to respect, uh, you know, certain tenets of the religion. The ten, you know, uh, the, the the emphasis on brotherhood, the emphasis on charity, certain very positive things about it. And at the same time, because he was so alone, if he was not going to go crazy, he needed to find some common ground with these people, and it couldn't be their ideology. So it had to be the religion. And over time, the religion has both become a great comfort to him, and it's an enormous tactical advantage for him because it means that he can blend with the jihadis in a way that even the suspicious ones will ultimately accept. And so that's you know that's why he's an interesting character to me, and you know both because I think it's real and it's authentic, and because I think it gives him interesting choices. He will always be Muslim. Yeah, and I think that even the readers or, or the people that don't understand, I think that they need to get rid of the disconnect of just because someone is of a religion that you know might be uh, doing controversial things, those people that do those things are not actually religious. They're just there to create chaos. That's a, and using the religion as the as you know their crutch, which was the same thing that used in the Crusades back in the 1100s, which you know I guess people forget history, which is amazing so, to me. <laughs> So this is, you know, this is a very interesting question, and it's one that has come up. I, I was talking about it with my wife last night. I was talking yeah. about it uh, with Charles Cumming, uh, you know, the the English spy novelist, uh, at an event last month. I think it's a fascinating question. How much does religion really play a role? I I, I would not go as far as you go. I, I I think religion does play a real role in in motivating uh, some of these people. Mm-hmm. Certainly, you know. Charles, what, what Charles said to me was, well, I think this is a lot about, you know, young men acting out, in some cases just because they're violent and, you know, criminal, in some cases because they want to impress women. It's always been that way. Young men have always gone to fight. And I said, you know, Charles, I think that's partly true, 
But look at the look at the number of young Muslims who you know commit suicide attacks. They're not doing it to get women, right? No. I mean, they know that there's no women waiting for you unless you believe in the seventy-two virgins uh, on the other end of a suicide attack. So clearly, they are they are they are committed to something more than just you know criminal behavior and and impressing women. So so I, I think it's a very complicated issue. And as somebody who's not Muslim, I don't want to speak for the religion. But I do think that to say religion has no part or, you know, or, or only a tiny part in, in these conflicts is not true either. So I, I will push back on you on that. Yeah, yeah and, and, you know, and, and, I just, and I kind of look because where, where my day job is, because this is, you know, the magazine and this is not my day job. My day job is I actually work for the country of Kuwait. So I work with Muslims. Oh, so wow. it's funny. Yeah, so it's funny because so you, I what see. For, what do you do for Kuwait? Yeah, so I'm an accountant for for the country of Kuwait and their cultural office. And oh. what they do is that they sponsor all the students that come from Kuwait, which is you know in the news a lot. Of course, you hear about all these college students coming from China and Saudi Arabia and Kuwait. They come over and they study here in the United States, and the Kuwait government you know handles all of their you know, finances, and they sponsor them to come over to study university in the United States. That's what they do. So I see the young, and then, I, you know, the young Muslims. I see the older Muslims that work in the office, and they all kind of say the same thing. They say, we really wish that people would stop using the word extreme Islamic because we don't view those people as being Muslim at all. So we don't even want the name put in there and saying extreme. They say, we don't even view what they do as anything. We condemn everything that they do. Um, so yeah, I kind of and they're very and they get very very upset whenever they see attacks and whatnot. I mean, it, it crushes them to the core of their being. Right. They're like, it's just so hard for them. Um, and I actually and I sat there and I've been there for a little over six years and I said, give me a copy of the Quran because I would love to read and see what it says. And the funny thing is, is it's such a peaceful book. Well, again, there is, to to a point. You no, know, you can to find a, point. a lot of violence in it too. Yeah, you can, but the overall core in talking to them, it, the, you know, they promote peace and love and compassion just like everything else. It's just some people take some of the interpretations in a different way, just like yeah. with the Bible and everything else. People interpret it into a different way, and I think that's what makes great complexity, like for your character and for other characters, people see interpretations in different ways, and they write their characters in those kinds of things, and that's what makes for great storytelling, uh, yes, I, I, I agree with that, and I and I hope that I've captured some of the complexities of the way you know the West views Muslims, Muslims mm-hmm. view the West. Uh, you know, I think I think I think again, John as a character in some ways embodies all of that complexity. So, uh, yep. so yes, I do. I I find it interesting, and I and and I'm sorry that you know there are some readers out there who just will say, you know what, no Muslim hero for me. They're all savages. I I, I think that's too bad. Yeah, but you know what? Let's jump into the prisoner, and why don't you give us a little backstory about what you got John going into in this one? So, so the prisoner, uh, and, and by the way, the prisoner has gotten the best reviews of any of the books, including the Faithful Spy. If you and, and this is not me saying this, if you look on Amazon, you can you know Amazon, you can look at the numerical rating, which is almost pure five star. Uh, you know, it's it's like a half star higher than any of the other books, and. Uh, on Goodreads, similarly, it's, it's significantly higher. So, so uh, the prisoner has really resonated with people um, in a way that, frankly, I almost didn't expect. But in the prisoner, 
Wells is going back almost to his original mission in The Faithful Spy. So, uh, as I said, you know, in The Faithful Spy, he winds up in in Afghanistan and then Pakistan in 2000, and, you know, in, from 1999 through 2006 when he's sent home uh, to stop an attack by Al Qaeda. Well, in The Prisoner, there is a there's a there's a high level mole inside the CIA, and I'm not giving anything away when I say that. That's fairly early on in the book. We don't know who it is, but we know there's someone. And and Wells and Ellis Schaefer, who's 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 still at the CIA. Wells is actually retired from the CIA, but you know, still closely associated with the agency. Figure this out, or they believe it. They they come to suspect it, and they decide that the only way they're going to get uh, this this mole to reveal himself is to send Wells into a prison where a high level Islamic State operative is being held. And the idea is Wells will either get this guy to talk, which is very unlikely, or possibly the mole will essentially, not necessarily panic, it's too strong a word, but he'll be forced to respond because he'll have to be afraid that Wells is going to find out who he is. And so they're essentially trying to, it's, you know, it's a depth charge. It's a, the goal is to, is to more or less drop this dynamite into the mole's world so he has no, and so, but for this to work, Wells is going to have to go undercover into this prison in a believable way. The prison is actually in Bulgaria. It's a black site prison um, of just the kind that, you know, our new president has said he's going to allow the CIA to reopen if, if it likes. And but Wells believes that if he's going to make this work, if he's going to pull this off, he's actually going to have to go to Afghanistan and, and be captured there and be rendered be transferred back to this prison. And so that's what he does. Um, one of the things about Wells that is so striking and is, you know, particularly striking in this book is that even though he's now in his, in his early to mid forties, he will do anything for a mission once he commits to it. And I, I, and I don't mean like he'll shoot, you know, he'll shoot anybody, although, you know, naturally in a, you know, he'll, he'll protect himself and he'll kill people who are who are bad guys or, or, you know, but, but I mean, he will take a, a, a massive level of punishment. He'll take massive risks and it isn't even, it's not in a superhero way. It's almost in a way of, he is almost obsessive compulsive. Once he decides to take something on, he cannot walk away. Yeah. And so, Oh, you still there? Oh yeah. Um, and so he, t- he takes on this massive punishment o- over the course of the mission and, and ultimately, he does not get the name of the mole from the prisoner who he's approaching in, in the prison. Um, but he gets a clue that leads him to something else. You know, and, of course, Schaefer is investigating uh, in Virginia. And, and ultimately, at the very end, they figure out what they need to figure out. I, I, well, I, maybe I shouldn't even – I mean, I don't think that's a spoiler. You would expect <laughs> no. he's going to win. But feel free to cut that if you want. Um, I'll just right. say this. He, he is investigating, and Schaefer is investigating, and meanwhile, the mole does, in fact, have uh, sort of a, 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 he's got a quite clever scheme in mind with the Islamic State, and everything comes to a head at, in Paris. Um, and so people have really liked the book. I think, they've, I think there's two main reasons why people have really liked the book. One is that the plot that the mole comes up with is very clever. It's probably as clever as anything since The Faithful Spy in terms of having a real ticking clock 
and having, uh, I think, a, a twist that people will not expect towards the end of the book in terms of how the mole expects to carry out a, you know, a terrible attack in Paris. And the other reason people like it is that Wells, you know, Wells is a difficult character in some ways. He's, you know, he doesn't have a sort of love interest of the, of the month in these books. He has a complicated romantic life. He's a, he's a real loner. In some ways, he discourages people from getting close to him. But in this book, at the beginning, he finds out that he has a very young daughter, which he didn't know. She's two. Uh, she's two for most of the book. He finds out barely. He finds out a few months after she's born, and then we sort of jump ahead. And she's two when he gets called into this mission. But that is a pull on him that I think a lot of readers have wanted. They've wanted him to have some kind of a relationship that grounds him that raises the stakes for him personally. And, and in this book, he has a very hard time leaving her in part because he already has an older child, a son who he didn't really see growing up and with whom he's, he's, he has a better relationship now, but there's still, he's not this, he's not this boy's father. He's not this young man's father in a real way. And so he knows that if he leaves this, his daughter, if he's if he's killed, if he's injured, he's never going to be her father, and that is the the thought of that is painful for him. But he knows he's got no choice but to go ahead with this mission, I, and so and so I think people have really responded to that. Yeah, and that's and that's the emotional pull that you you kind of have to put on these characters because it, it gives them that sense of you know almost scruples. It's like okay, you know, you're doing certain things, and are they going to be cautious in some way because? Of like you said, because oh my God, now he just finds out that he has a two-year-old daughter. Is that going to make him a little more cautious? Is that going to make him, you know, rethink some of the things that maybe he would do? Uh, and so it, it can almost kind of change the character and his attitude in the book on the fly. Yeah. And you have to do that as the author. You have to kind of figure that out. And that's got to be a challenge to be able to kind of balance, you know who John Wells was in the last book, and then all of a sudden now you're throwing this revelation to him, and now you're going to have almost a new John Wells coming forward, and you have to kind of figure out that how that's going to work. And was that challenging to kind of, you know, have to do that? Was that something that you, was that something that you thought about before you wrote the book, or did it kind of happen while you were kind of getting into it? And you said, you know what, I'm going to throw this in. Uh, it was not something that I anticipated. It was uh... – it happened fairly early on. You know, I, it was, you know, he gets this call in the first chapter that he's in, which I think is the, just after the prologue. And then it, it, as you say, you're exactly right. I had to figure out what this meant for his life. And, um, mm-hmm. and, and I think I, I, I hope I did that in a realistic way. I mean, there's a moment sort of in the middle of the book when he's desperate to, you know, to call his daughter and he knows he can't. And ultimately he just, he takes the phone that he, you know, could have used to call her, and he just smashes it. And he knows he's cutting himself off, not just from her, but he's cutting himself off from the CIA. It's not really a good move, but he knows that if he has any ability to contact her, the pull is going to be too much. Now, when you wrote that in the first chapter and then you finished, did you said, did you sit there and look at yourself and say, what the hell did I just do to him? <laughs> um, you know, no, I <laughs> You're like, did I just write that? Hold on a second. Did I just write that? Oh shit. Okay, now I gotta figure it out. It was only over time that I realized how meaningful it would be, to be honest with you. Yeah. Now a lot of the things when when people I and I hear this from some fans, they're like, you know, I would love to kind of get into military and spy thrillers, but 
the some of the things that they have are some of the terminology and like one of the things that you brought up i don't know if people actually understand what the term means but when you say it's a black site prison and in bulgaria and then you know you kind of mentioned that this is something that our president now has said the cia can maybe open what exactly define like black site prison so when people kind of understand what that means like what is that so sure and, and i define it in the book and i'll say my this my books are not heavy on terminology you know i think actually uh you know again like the thors of the world they really get into that stuff I, i'm much more interested in the psychological complexities of my characters than in mm-hmm. you know the latest uh you know black hawk uh you know uh, weapon system uh you know that uh, that uh special forces uh you know quietly suppressed Blackhawk might have on it or something um, right. to use a really bad example that I just kind of mangled. But, well, there's but, some uh, authors that, that, you know, there's some authors that will spend four pages on the complexity of an aircraft. And it's yeah, like, really? Here's how, here's how this, you know, this helicopter avoids, you know, radar. Like, right. you know what? Like, if you want to, if you want to read about that, that's fine. But that's, that's not, that's not what's interesting to me. What's interesting to me is what are the men who are on that, helicopter thinking as they go in um and so but so a black side prison uh is is simply a prison that whose existence is not officially disclosed or acknowledged by the united states government um and oftentimes they're in third you know they're, they're in fact always they're in countries outside the united states um and so it's you know it's when you have prisoners who's you know for a long time there were prisoners uh al-Qaeda operatives mostly, whose existence we didn't want to acknowledge, and we didn't want to acknowledge that we were holding them. But, yeah, and, and this is very problematic because, uh, you know, one of, the, one of the rules of war really is that, is that people's families and their countries do have the right to know, you know, if they've been taken and if they're being detained indefinitely. Even, you know, at some point their cases should be adjudicated, but even before you get to that point, you know, people have the right to know what's happened to, to you know, to human beings. Sure. Human beings should not just be disappeared. And so that's the, you know, that's the issue around black site prisons. Um, and ultimately, I think, you know, we have, or, you know, several years ago, we disclosed the names of all the prisoners and, you know, and their nationalities. I mean, one of the issues was some of these people are, quote, unquote, stateless in that they either actively renounce their countries or their countries have renounced them. So what do you do with them? How do you, you know, it, they're not really prisoners of war. That was the Bush administration argument because there's nobody to sign a peace treaty with. So there's no, there's, there, you know, that's where the term enemy combatant came in because mm-hmm. how do you, how do you actually have a war when there's no declared enemy? So, so there are there are all these sort of interesting legal issues around black site prisons, which I go into only, you know, in passing in the book because just as I'm not a uh, you know, I'm not in love with talking too much about military technology. I'm not in love with talking too much about the complexities, the legal complexities of the war on terror. But, yeah, I do need to know enough about it to write credibly about it. But that's what a black site prison is. And by the way, again, if I explain that in the book. And, and mm-hmm. if there are things you need to know for, to make this story make sense to you, I'm not going to assume that you're an intelligence officer or a soldier. I'm going to assume that, that you know, I'm going to explain it to you in a, in a clear way, in a way that doesn't mess up the flow of the story, but you're going to get the information you need. I, I view that as part of my job as an author. Mm-hmm. And now, and the other thing that you're very, very good at, and this is also a very difficult thing, you know, because 
99% of these readers will probably never go to Bulgaria or Syria or a lot of the places and, of course, never see uh, that kind of side that you know, you're having to write. So you're having to basically have the sites that you're sending, John, and the team and everything that goes on. They're actually like a third character in the book. So how conscious of you are, the, are, are you as the author when you're writing those sites and you're, and you're talking about those places that people will probably never be and almost making it as a third character? Um, so, yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, I think that's something that a lot of people really like about the books, both people who travel and people who don't. People who travel, to, you know, I mean, not that many people have been to you know, Pakistan or Afghanistan, but a lot of people have been to Paris, let's say, or, right. you know, or Mexico City or other places that, you know, I, I might write about. Um, people, people who do travel like to see the places that they've written about. They think it's interesting. Uh, and people who don't travel, I think they, they, they enjoy the idea that they're getting to go to a place they might never get to visit. Um, and I do travel to almost all the places in the books. Uh, uh, you know, and I think it's, I think it's important. I think it makes the experience more authentic. And in some ways, that travel is, and I want to write something about this, I haven't yet, but that travel is the most I can live like John Wells. Because even though I'm not a spy, and even though no one's chasing me, when I travel to these places, I'm almost always alone. I almost always don't speak the language. And I have to travel with this sort of a heightened sense of wariness, of, you know, of, of uh, not danger, but, but uh, I'm an outsider. You're going to be alert. I've got to be alert, but, and, I've got to, and I've got to watch. And, and to be in a place where you are alone and you don't speak the language and there are these conversations happening all around you, whether whether it's you know whether it's a fancy restaurant in Paris or whether it's a you know it's a it's a crowded square in Bahrain uh, you know or uh, or Turkey or wherever it makes it heightens your senses and to some extent that is what Wells is living with all the time and so so I do enjoy the the travel experience and I you know and and sometimes it's the smallest thing that will trigger an important uh, an important, you know, uh, revelation for me that will get into the book. It'll be something that I don't even expect. So, so, uh, so, so, I think I think it's important for me to travel, and I think readers like it. Now, of course, one of the big questions I'm sure that you always hear, and so I'm going to have to just ask it, just to get you on the record for us. Now, this is the 11th book in the series, so people are going to say, "Oh, should I start with the Faithful Spy? Should I just jump in?" How do you answer that question about how they should attack the John Wells series? if they're just kind of finding out about you, like they've been living under a rock and they just finally heard your name. <laughs> so, sure. Um, look, I, I, I've made sure that all the books are accessible. You don't have to read them in order. If, you, if you're hearing this interview and you're saying, I love the idea of this series, I want to read them all, then by all means, read them in order because Wells does age and mm -hmm. his experiences do add up. And so you will have the best, uh, it's a reading experience, and you'll have the best understanding of how he became who he is. Um, so, so, so if you're totally into it, then do that. On the other hand, if you're not sure, I would say start with the prisoner, uh, because first of all, it's the newest, so it's the, it, you know it's naturally the freshest. It's not it's not 11 years old like the Faithful Spy, but beyond that, it's gotten these great reviews. So, so why not start with it? And if you and if you like it, then don't hop around. Go to uh, go to the Faithful Spy and read them in order. 
Um, but but honestly, you know, if you're if you're hearing this and uh, you're at a you know a bookstore that doesn't have either the Prisoner or the Faithful Spy, well, first of all, that's a bad bookstore. But more importantly, <laughs> um, uh, you know, you see a different Wells novel, you can pick that one up too. I I. I Hey, everybody. We want to thank you all for listening for Alex Berenson and, of course, John McGarn. We are going to be out. want to thank you all again for listening. And just please remember, keep reading. Have a good one, everybody. See you guys next time. Bye-bye.